Well, good morning. This is Henry Harrison. Welcome to another edition of the Spiritual Foundations of Mental Health. Today's topic, you bring the argument with you. Okay, let's begin with a simple overview of what it is that we're exploring here in the Foundations of Mental Health. We're talking about the sim- a, 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 a beautiful, wonderful truth about our psychological experience, about our moods and feelings moment to moment, that we are experiencing a flow a divine live feed that is showing up in our heart minds. And yes, there are events happening. And yes, there are circumstances. And yes, we would live through things from our past. And there are present moment scenarios. And there are things that are coming our way in the future. But the power of those experiences to create a feeling inside of us is not, that doesn't, that the power doesn't come from those events and circumstances. The power comes from an experience of this moment. I'll give you a simple example that I've quoted many times. And I'm sure you've had this experience as well. You have done or I did something that was particularly clumsy. uh, And I was embarrassed about it. And in one instance, I texted someone that was very important to me that I was trying to impress. I accidentally texted him like 70 times. And when I noticed that I had done so, I saw that 58 times before that, like after 12 times of texting him, he had written back saying, can you please stop? And then, of course, I continued to do so for 58 more times. When I saw that text and what I had done, um, I, I felt this overwhelming experience of nausea and shame and mortification. And it was like intense. Like it was like I was underneath it. There was, it felt like there was nothing I could do. And it was an inappropriate thing that I did. It was careless. But I felt kind of like stricken, just absolutely paralyzed with shame and embarrassment. And then guess what? At some point down the line, we, I addressed it and I dealt with it. And, and now more often than not, when I think of the event, I don't experience really anything of a mortification, although it can happen. It can happen that there are times where a glimpse of that memory can come up in my in my mind with a feeling of shame and embarrassment. Like it can still happen that I can kind of rekindle the embarrassment. Now, how does that work exactly? My take on that is that it's not so much that the event is the cause of my feelings, because I, I know that because if it would really be the case that the event were or the memory of the event would be like in a sense, a memory of remembering something is an actual quote unquote event. It's a present moment event that I'm remembering an event. I'm, uh, it, it's, an, it's a present moment event that I'm remembering something, right? Um, the fact that there are times where remembering that experience produces something neutral or kind of comical, or on other occasions, it can produce a feeling of shame, it would suggest that the event itself is not actually the source of that event. Otherwise, it would it would be static. It would be pretty consistent. Now, that's what tells me that it's not the event itself that's causing that feeling. It's kind of the flow I'm experiencing. And how do I, so how do I understand that there are times where I can revisit a feeling of shame about that klutzy moment? Because my moods are dropping and rising and rising and dropping. And when my mood drops sufficiently where the world looks like a, uh, the world feels, I feel the world from this kind of constricted narrowness from a mood and a kind of a flow of energy that is itself narrow 
and and short-sighted and self-centered. It's a quality of a of a flow that I'm not the author of. I I when I visit that flow and I'm kind of living in that flow, then I'm much more susceptible. I of course I will see the world through a shame a shameful and embarrassed lens. I it just it it's only natural that information shows up as evidence for what is basically a mood I'm already living in. Now it looks to me like it's the opposite. It looks to me that not it's not that the mood I'm experiencing is therefore bringing that event to look the way it does. It's that the event, the event unto itself is shaping the feeling and mood I'm in. But it can't be. It cannot be. It's rather it's the case that we're all living in these flows. And we get distressed and we get insecure. And then the world looks like all kinds of evidence corroborating that insecure mood. And we get lost, we get lighter and warmer. And we then look and experience the world through that lens. Having some perception of how that's that works is such a gift. It's it's such a blessing. First and foremost, it's real. It's just the nature of what's true about the reality of our lives. There is a simple spiritual truth behind every experience that we're having. Nothing has its independent power to create that feeling inside of me. It's I'm experiencing this divine life feed. That doesn't mean I'm therefore in control of the divine life feed. It doesn't mean that I can edit it or make it less insecure or more upbeat. I don't know how to edit it, but the ability to watch it and to thereby become cognizant of the fact that there's this force that's unfolding inside me has been such a blessing. It, it's still the case that I experience painful feelings. It's still the case that I'm not in control. I feel out of control, except that there are times where the out of controlness feels a little bit less frightening. In fact, sometimes it feels much less frightening. In fact, there are times where it actually feels warmly intimate that I'm not in control because the truth behind that idea that I'm not in control is on is the flip side of the fact that there is a single simple source that is in control, that it's absolutely the case that I'm powerless, but there is a power. And I'm on the a moment to moment to moment completely and totally dependent on that power. And that power is reliable. It's good. It's warm. It creates this loving and peaceful, or rather it creates, it's animating a safe and healthy world that includes painful feelings, that includes insecure, frightened, anxious feelings. It includes confusion, uncertainty. It includes all of those things. And none of those feelings contradict the simple truth. This, this world is uh, we are connected to a spiritual foundation. This, the foundations of our mental health are unconditional. And each moment that we are interested in to interested in exploring that truth, we're fulfilling a wonderful commandment of knowing and affirming that there's a, a, a creator, a single simple source. And each moment that we're willing and open to consider that it's not the world and the events that make it up that are causing that experience of life, but rather it's something else, then every moment that we are willing and interested to explore that, we're fulfilling another great commandment called don't believe in idols. Don't ascribe power to something that's not the actual single simple source. It's unbelievable the a possibility for success in our spiritual and personal lives by remembering this idea, by simply being willing and interested to explore this idea. And then, of course, 
it's unquestionable that there will be actual impact that our our minds will soften or rather our 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 minds will open and we'll come to see our experience of life with new eyes we'll come to be able to watch our experience of life with a kind of capacity to respond rather than react it's just an amazing thing and of course we get to keep learning it over and over again it's not a kind of a one time we learn it and we're done although those insights do change us okay well that's our intro and today's topic was you bring your arguments with you this week's portion i'm struck by the uh, classic description in the talmud of of the definition of an argument there's really two types of arguments there's only two there's an argument that is for the sake of heaven, and that I would understand to mean for the sake of clarifying a truth. I'm, I'm, I, I think that A is true, and I encounter someone who thinks that no, B is true, and A is mistaken. If I'm interested in really uncovering a deeper truth, then I will argue, but argue with a goal of truth in mind. I'm looking to understand something more deeply. I'm aware that I might. I have limitations to my clarity or my perceptions, and I'm, I, I actually see value in the possibility of visiting someone else's perspective such that I might learn from them. Not that I'm therefore nullifying my perspective just for no other reason than to make peace, but no, I'm willing to state my case and to argue my argument, but with the goal of arguing for the sake of understanding something true or truer, that, that includes openness. That's, a, that's an argument for the sake of heaven, and it's a very precious thing. It's a super holy, constructive thing. Now, there's another type of argument, and that's an argument not for the sake of heaven. And, um, and that is where the goal is not for the uncovering of a, of a deeper truth. It does not include the possibility of, of being open to an alternative, it does not include self self awareness that I could be mistaken in how I draw conclusions about life, even though it doesn't look to me like I could be mistaken. It's just a desire to affirm this is what I feel, and I'm going to now find and corral every piece of evidence I can to justify the way I feel. Those are the two approaches. Now it's fascinating that you and I can approach both of those. We can argue either in the approach of the, for the sake of heaven or not for the sake of heaven, we can do those independently. It's, it's sufficient for one guy to argue in either one of those approaches. You can be interested in the sake of truth, and you can argue by yourself, or rather, you by yourself in an argument can approach the topic that manner. And, and you'll see in the course of your disagreement, you'll, you'll have an opportunity, like the Talmud describes Beit Hillel, Beit Hillel took this practice. They, they were careful in their arguments over Talmudic concepts to listen and to then repeat what they heard from the person they argued with. And before they moved on to explaining their own position, they would recapitulate, they would restate what it is that their arguer had said. This is that, right? Let me see if I'm understanding what you're saying. And then they would say it, and the guy would either say, no, no, you didn't quite get it, and he would then give it to him one more time and they would do another listening round or he would say yeah that's exactly what i'm saying and then at that point Beit Hillel would say okay well let me tell you why i think you're mistaken it was a profound exchange of of um of ideas profound affirmation of the dignity and the respectable nature the respect worthy of each party to an argument like you and i have 
limitations, but at the same time, we have um, we have something to offer in a conversation and limitations. And so we're going to listen to each other and thereby affirm the extraordinary value that each of us can bring to a learning experience. I need you is kind of what is at the root of that type of argument. And quickly, you'll see whether or not you have a party to argue with who is similar. Um, the other, in the other direction, it's the same thing. A person can, you can be in an argument by yourself where you alone are presenting the kind of not for the sake of heaven uh, approach. And the other guy's just like, uh, yeah, okay, I'm, I, I'm, you know, at a certain point, it, it, that if there's only one party who wants to argue uh, in this kind of not for the sake of heaven approach, it gets, it gets boring quickly. There are times sometimes where I watch that argument unfold between myself and someone else. And then at some point I wake up or I watch it unfold between my children and I can say, wait, let, let's just pause for a second and, and let's consider, do you think that you're going to convince him or do you think you're going to convince her of your position? How do you think that's going to go? You know, they kind of revisit and restate their position over and over again with growing degrees of heat. And that whole idea of machlokas is a fascinating idea. The fact, the word in Hebrew machlokas, the root of that word machlokas comes from the word chelik. Chelik means a part, a part, like a part of, of, a, of a whole. The essence of all human interactions is going to involve argument, disagreement. The nature of human interaction is that there is disagreement. And the only question is, how is that disagreement going to be navigated? Why is there necessary that, why is it necessary that all human interaction is going to involve disagreement? Because human beings, by nature, have partial worldviews. There's nothing inherently problematic about the idea of a machlokas. That word machlokas, disagreement, certainly is used in generic terms as bad. But we see from the Talmud that the, the, the Mishnah and the Talmud describes that there's such a thing as an argument of machlokas for the sake of heaven. So the, the idea behind all human interaction is that there will be disagreements. How will we navigate them? beginning of the navigating them in a, in a healthy way is to appreciate that the root of machlokas, the root of the word argument is chalik, partial. I go into a dispute knowing that I am by nature, by virtue of being human being, I am possessing a partial worldview. That doesn't mean, therefore, nothing I think and conclude has merit, but it does give me pause to consider that my first draft, my first kind of knee-jerk response is worthy of, con of, of of revisiting. It's worthy of looking at. It's worthy of looking at, especially in the context of a of a debate partner. It's a precious thing to have a debate partner. I have to say that I have been the beneficiary of a debate partner in my learning for almost nine years. Unfortunately, we're going to be wrapping up because we're not going to be living in the same city uh, soon. But he is precious to me. And one of the things that defined that, that kind of epitomizes his preciousness is his absolute desire to acknowledge and respect and affirm the value of what I contribute to the argue, to the to the discussion. Like we're truly, he's truly interested in listening and tuning into what I say. And he'll always accredit me, say, Oh, this seems to corroborate with what you just said like a minute ago or five minutes ago or yesterday. He's always looking to see and acknowledge the value in my perception, in my perspective. And where he disagrees, he does so in a way that 
it completely affirms his respect for what I have to contribute. And let me tell you, the creative juices that are that arise in the presence when you feel you're arguing with someone who truly is 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 not there to battle you, but is truly looking to to work together with you to uncover some truth. The creative juices that that brings forth are special. It's really amazing, like the peaceful, warm motivation that I feel uh, looking at a topic together with him, even knowing that we will have differing views on the matter. It's amazing. It's just truly amazing the way in which human beings are designed to want to connect, but to connect from places of their partial worldview. It's exciting to know I have a partial worldview and to be able to navigate the partialness of my worldview toward connecting and experiencing something of a shared nature with another person. It's so exciting. It's so gratifying. It's so fulfilling. In order to do that, it's important for us to understand that we're bringing this partial worldview with us wherever we go. And that partial worldview, to a meaningful extent, is is related to this whole this whole description that we've talked about in terms of moods and flow of energy. Your 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 inclination to be argumentative or to be conciliatory is itself coming from a flow. It's coming from this kind of state of mind in a given moment. And all of this is precious and helpful to see and understand as not only as we're navigating our own internal experience, but as we're navigating the experience that we have in our interactions with others. We're having partial worldviews, we're having moods, we're having feelings that are flowing through us. All of those are shaping the the sense of of what it looks and feels like to interact with, to disagree with, to be at odds with another person. Does that look threatening to me? Does that look uh, like an opportunity to me? Those are kind of some of the basics behind the idea that we bring the argument wherever we go because we bring the mood that we have wherever we go.